hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn with me if you would. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. We've been teaching on um, who Antioch Church is and in our journey of discovering who we are as a church, we're first beginning on discovering what the Bible says about what it means to be a Christian. Because in our culture, Christian has become defined many different ways. And so in order for us to be a, a kingdom church, which is nothing more than a group of kingdom Christians. And we must understand what it means to be a biblical believer, a kingdom believer. And so we're gonna take a look here at Acts eleven 26. I'll pray and then we'll just move forward with our next installment of what kind of Christian are you? Acts eleven twenty six. the scripture says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and they discipled them. They grounded people, they established them, they taught them, they trained a great number of people. And the disciples were first called Christians, followers of Jesus at Antioch. They were distinguished, they were set apart as followers of Jesus at Antioch. Father, we pray that you would restore unto the church, particularly, Lord, the Western church, you would restore to the church of this city, you would restore to the church of this great state what it means to be a Christian as you define what Christian is. Father, we pray for a great revival in the nation of America. Unlike anything that we've ever seen before, an unprecedented move of God to where we would not say this was like the first great awakening or the second great awakening or Toronto or Brownsville or Mobile. We would say this is something that God is doing in our midst that is clearly divine. It is of divine origin that you are returning the hearts and the minds of men and women and children to you, married to you, married to you, God, in Nazarite consecration and devotion, married to you in biblical thinking, married to you in reformation. Lord, let every institution, let every sphere of our society reflect the glory, the order, the righteousness, and the goodness of our God and of his kingdom. We pray this today in the name of Jesus, Amen. I encourage you, there's too much information here for me to review every week, especially today as we're running a little bit short on time as far as how much time I'd like to be able to speak this morning. So I encourage you, if, if you're here today for the first time or if you missed last week or the week before, just jump onto the podcast. There should be a web address there on the bulletin that you can reference and you can get caught up to speed because each of these messages are building upon one another. We have created a grid on different types of Christians as we're walking through understanding what it means to be a kingdom Christian. And we are talking about the Christian's approach to truth. Last week, very quickly, we discussed the basis of truth. How do people determine or decipher what the basis of truth is? And we said that the cultural Christian says truth is what I believe it is. If I believe this is true, then it's true. The consumer Christian says, well, it's based on what I receive. If there are material goods, possessions, belongings, if I'm being advanced, if I'm being blessed, then it must be true. 
And conversely, if I'm not receiving what I should be or what I want to be receiving, then I question the, the validity of the authority of the truth that I'm hearing and, and receiving. The convenient Christian says it's based on what I achieve. It's more on a time scale. If this can advance me, help me, move me forward, if things aren't happening to the degree that I expect them to be happening, then I question the validity of their truth. That's what the convenient Christian says. Whereas the crisis Christian is not so much concerned on the validity of truth, they just wanna get out of their situation quickly. And they say that if it helps relieve me, if it helps rescue me, then it must, it must be true. And if I'm not relieved or rescued quickly, then I question the validity of truth. Whereas the kingdom Christian says it's true because it's, it's from the spirit of truth. And we talked about the fact that truth is spiritual in its very nature. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that today as we continue to discover what it means for God to call us to be kingdom Christians. The kingdom of God is transformational in its very nature. So if we follow that thinking, if I, and I believe that's a truth according to scripture, the source of scripture. And so if we believe that the kingdom of God is transformational by nature, in other words, whether it be on an individual level, whether it be in our thinking level, whether it be in the level of our emotions and our attitudes, whether it be in the arena of marriages or families, something that sets Christians apart is that we believe at the very core of our being based on the truth of scripture, that where God and his word are involved, that transformation not only can happen, but should and will happen. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 is a great scriptural reference as this is concerned. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. Behold, the old has passed away. The moment you and I became followers of Jesus, as the scripture defines a follower of Jesus, the moment you and I receive the spirit of God as a deposit, as a guarantee of our inheritance, the moment you and I were grafted into the family of God, something happened. We began partnering with a transformational spirit and a transformational process of which we can actively partner with and participate so that we become less like ourselves and we become more like Christ. The goal is for every single one of us to become more and more and more and more and more like Jesus in every area of our lives, from the things that we think upon to the way that we think upon those things, to the things that come out of our mouths, to the way that we see the world around us, everything that happens around us, it is possible for us to see it the way that heaven sees it. It is possible for us to have not only heaven's vantage point, but heaven's perspective on the issue. And when we condition our minds according to truth, according to what God deems truth and what he breathes on by his spirit of truth, we can begin seeing the world accurately. We can, we can begin perceiving the world accurately. The word truth very simply means what is ultimate reality? What is ultimate reality? And I'm gonna use that concept here of ultimate reality as we walk through how each of these Christians defines truth. Number one, the cultural Christian says that truth is relative. Truth is relative. I'm just gonna load you up with a couple of definitions here. But as I read these definitions, 
the church that we live in, and more importantly, the world that we live in, and the worldview that I've heard from so many people, including Christians, is revealed in this definition. Relativism is the belief that different things are true for different people or at different times. Now think about that. Relativism says that different things are true for different people at different times or at different places. So what was true then isn't true now. That's, that's a relativistic thought. Or just because God works for you or just because you have chosen that this is your path, don't impose your path upon me. Just because your God says thou shalt not steal and you shouldn't kill and you shouldn't covet and you shouldn't do those things. Well, that's, that works for you, but different things are true for different people at different places and different times. That is what relativism means. It is a theory that knowledge is relative. A theory that all knowledge, truth, therefore, has no absolutes. There is no truth. The relativistic mind, the, relative, the secular relativistic approach to truth and knowledge says there is no truth because truth cannot be known. It cannot be revealed to the limited nature of the mind and the conditions of knowing. Look at this definition. It is a view that ethical truths depend on the individual that's holding them. Truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Let's all just have our own truth. And if there are many truths, there is no truth. The cultural Christian says there are no absolutes. Here's a word that jumped out at me. Truth, law, and authority are arbitrary. I came across that word arbitrary in one of the books that I've been reading here recently. And I wasn't quite sure. I had, I had my conceptual understanding of what the word meant, but I, I wanted to go look and see what the word meant. Look at the word arbitrary here. It says it depends on an individual's discretion. In other words, it's based upon your own judgment. So if truth is arbitrary, truth can never be consistent. Because if you judge based upon your mood or your emotions, or if you judge based upon your associations, that at this moment, truth, is, truth works because it works for me. This is what happens typically when you have people that operate with a mindset that truth is arbitrary. To the degree that it works for me, then that is truth and you should abide by it. But to the degree that it hurts me, well, no, that's not really true. That's just true for you. Are you seeing this? At the core of every single one of our lives, we hunger for truth. Our own hypocrisy betrays us because the moment someone lives on their standard of truth and it harms us, the moment we go to the mechanic and their standard of truth of what a good job looks like does not match up to what our standard of a good job looks like, then we get upset. Why is that if you really believe that truth is relative? If truth is relative, there would be no standards for homes. If truth was relative, there would be no equal weights and measures in finance. The reason why this nation became one of the best nations on the planet is because at the core of our foundation, 
we were educated according to the truth of scripture. Truth implies that there is a moral standard. Listen to this. Truth implies that there is a moral standard. And to the degree, this is scripture now, to the degree that a nation operates according to a moral truth and a moral law, to that degree, it will walk in righteousness, peace, and joy. Without moral law, there can be no moral integrity. Integrity would be relative based on our own definition of what moral law we choose. Is this making sense today? Look at the word arbitrary again. It means to be not restrained or limited in the exercise of power. I thought that was interesting because when we live as arbitrary men and women without the restraint of truth, without the restraint of a moral standard, in other words, let me translate this, every single one of us can live as we want to live. Imagine a marriage where there was no moral accountability to a standard of submission to one another. If there was no moral accountability to what love is, well, your definition of love says that I should be faithful, but my definition of love doesn't say that, so I, by my definition of love, get to go sleep around with every person that I want to because my definition of love says, are you, are you following this? Let's look at this definition again. It is not restrained or limited in the exercise of power. Some of you may have heard the phrase an arbitrary government ruling by absolute authority. When we are given absolute authority for our sin nature to live without the restraints of a moral law, you have the culture that we've created. The fruit and the effect of that mindset is seen in our marriages, it's seen in our children, it's seen in the, thing, the, the debauchery and the decadence around us, and we sit back and wonder how that's possible. It's possible because it's traced to a belief system that at its core says, we reject God and we choose self. Listen to this quote that I took from Dara Miller's book called Discipling Nations. It says, secularism's starting premise that there is no God leads to the rejection of objective standards for truth. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? If I begin, if my starting point, which we use the word presupposition, if the spiritual agenda of my heart, presupposition, says there is no God, well, if there's no God, if I've removed a moral authority, I've removed moral law, and there is nothing for me to be accountable to. I've removed objective standards for truth. Truth becomes relative, since the foundation for knowledge is man himself. This is very important. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about this. I don't have time to go into modern, modernity and post-modernity, but essentially what took place was there was a season of time, we'll call it the modern movement. Modernism says that if you can measure it, if you can prove it, then it must be true. And so everything became scientific, everything became empirical, and because we can't measure God and because there's nothing about him that we can see, there's nothing about him that we can hear, there's nothing about him that we can taste or touch, then God obviously cannot be true because truth are only those things that can be proven by evidence scientifically on what I can measure. Now, naturally, you're gonna come up short with that. 
And as new philosophers and new thinkers came on the scene, they said, well, well, my goodness, that, that obviously can't be true. So because we cannot explain truth, well, let's just explain away truth. And truth, the postmodern movement, becomes your experience. Experience becomes the ultimate truth. As Nietzsche said, there are many eyes, therefore there are many truths, therefore there are no truths. To the degree that we base truth upon man's personal perspective, to that degree we erase truth. Because how do I validate your truth over mine? How do we validate this racist truth over that racist truth? How do we validate this generation's truth over that generation's truth or this denomination's over that or this party line over that? You can't, you have to treat everybody equally. And if you have to treat everyone equally, then everyone's truth is equal and everyone's truth is equal, then there has to be no truth. Are you hearing me today? This is very important, church. Truth for the secularist is in the eye of the beholder. Something is true, not because it corresponds with reality, not because it has an objective standard, but because a person believes it. That's what it means to be relative. One more quote here. As Alan Bloom reminded us in the closing of the American mind, modern man's ultimate value is not truth, but it's openness. Tolerance. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. You are not allowed to speak about my personal preferences because if you do, then you are committing a hate crime. Because what I choose is truth. And if you don't like it and you speak out against it in the name of truth, then you are stereotyping me. You are hating me based upon my religious preference or my sexual preference or my personal preference. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So if we've removed truth and now those who speak truth become enemies of the tolerant culture that we live in, this is where we're at, folks. This is where secular humanistic thought has brought us to completely, and what might I just say, masterfully and brilliantly erode the prophetic voice of the church from the culture. And to the degree that we remove the prophetic voice from the culture, culture lives in bondage, the culture destroys itself, and it ends up in death. The consumer Christian, I gotta move quickly here. Truth to them is not just relative, truth is personal. Let me read, this is just a fabulous book that I would recommend. It's called Truth and Transformation. And as I wade my way through this series, I'm contemplating on whether or not to take some of these points and just blow them up on the macro level because what you will see is to the degree that a culture upholds the biblical standard and value of truth, you will see the fruit of that in their economy. You will see the fruit of that in their government and their laws and their education, all of those things. It's very masterful and history does not lie. I mean, history has shown us a very clear path. Let me read a couple thoughts here for you. Education was a key force that transformed Western Europe. Religious reformers such as Martin Luther, John Knox, John Amos, Comenius universalized education precisely to civilize generations that could create a new Europe. The pioneers of modern education made character formation a primary function of education because they accepted the Judeo-Christian ideas that number one, God is holy. 
We're gonna get there when we talk about a kingdom Christian. If your God is holy, then his law is holy and his law become absolute standards of truth. Truth is because God is. Truth does not change because God does not change. Truth is right because God is holy. Remember in biblical worldview, everything begins with, our character, with the character and the nature of God. They base their education on the Judeo-Christian idea that number two, God is not only holy, he has given us moral laws. Many people in the world, when we get to the crisis, Christian, I'll explain this. Many people say, truth cannot be known. Truth is hidden. Truth is mysterious. Truth is fate. Well, that's not the God of scripture. The God of scripture says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the truth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so truth has been eternally existent, revealed through his word. God has revealed truth to us. See, the kingdom Christian, the Christian understands truth comes not by rationalism, it comes by revelation. Because truth in its very substance is spiritual. It's not intellectual, it's spiritual. I had a profound moment with God this morning. As I went through eight years of studying, I developed an attitude. I developed an attitude towards people uh, that were scholarly and academic mostly because of the attitude upon which they approached me and they approached certain subjects. And I began to have a very, not only negative, but a very pessimistic view upon truth and upon the search for truth. And I thought to myself, I, I'm just not intellect, I'm just, I'm just not an intellectual. I, to the degree that I defined an intellectual negatively. I said, I'm just not that because those people are just they're, just, they're just interested in arguing and being proud and arrogant and proving their point. And I prided myself in not being an intellectual. I prided myself in being more of a practitioner. And my job in every one of these debates in our classrooms was try to simplify everything down to the practical truth of what we're doing to love God and love people. And in so doing, I thought I, I, I was right. And the Lord showed me this morning, he said, son, you've, believed a lie. You believed a lie about yourself. You've believed that you're not capable of understanding these truths and you believe that these truths are not important to understand. And in a moment, he changed my mentality. In a moment, the Lord said, this is essential for the kingdom to come and you are more than capable. And I wanna say that to you this morning as well. Truth is not an intellectual exercise. Truth comes by revelation of God's spirit. They accept the Judeo-Christian ideas that God has given us moral laws, such as the 10 commandments. Thou shalt not kill, whether, let me just add this, thou shalt not kill, whether in the body or out of the body is still a moral law based out of the morality of a holy God, which still has moral consequences. That is not to shame anyone who has made negative decisions or poor choices in your past. Thank God for the redemptive power of Jesus. Thank God for grace. Grace, which does not excuse us from holding the standard. Grace empowers you to reach the standard. See, a poor, a poor dissertation of grace says to you, there's no standard, do your best. That's not biblical. Sin means we have missed the standard. 
If there were no standard, Jesus would not have to come to redeem us from a standard that we didn't satisfy. There very much is a standard because God is holy. And because God is holy, our sin is an offense against his holy standard. And he says, my grace will not just excuse you from that. My grace will empower you. My grace will strengthen you and anoint you and enable you to meet that standard in the spirit. That's good news, folks. That's truth. The Judeo-Christian idea that number three, obedience to God's word is the precondition for life and peace. This was being instructed into people. Imagine what a generation would look like. Imagine what a civilization would look like if their daily diet of education says God is holy, he has given us laws, and to the degree you follow his laws, you'll experience life and peace. Number four, they also taught that disobedience is sin and it brings curses. And obedience brings blessing. Sounds like Deuteronomy chapter 28 to me. And finally, it says sinners can repent and receive forgiveness of new life. This was being taught in the foundation and the fabric of education applied to every discipline of study. Let's keep reading. This good news became the intellectual foundation of the modern West, the force that produced moral integrity, economic prosperity, and political freedom. You know what that's saying? It's saying that the strength and the beauty and the glory that our nation walked in, in 200 years time, when some civilizations have existed for thousands of years, it was not an anomaly. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a random stroke of luck and fate. What this is saying, and I believe it to be true according to the Bible, is that this nation experienced favor and experience life, experienced blessing to the degree that this nation corporately upheld the truth of God's word. Why are moral foundations floundering? This is very insightful. If moral integrity is foundational to prosperity, that's a presupposition. That moral integrity is foundational to prosperity, and I might add, it's foundational to longevity in prosperity where the scripture says he blesses us to prosper and he adds no sorrow to it. So yeah, I could prosper through corruption, but I'm gonna be living with my finger on my nine, always wondering what's going on around me, right? But the scripture says to the degree that you live with, uh, within the framework of God's moral integrity, you will prosper and there will be no sorrow and no fear that's attached to him. The reason, the reason why our moral integrity is being eroded is because universities no longer know whether moral laws are true universal principles or if they are mere social conventions made up to restrict our freedoms. Is that making sense? So in our universities, secular humanism is saying, we're not really sure if there's truth and if there's truth, there's no moral law. And what we assume is that those Christians are just saying there's moral law because they wanna, they wanna restrict your freedom. It sounds very similar to something that I heard um, in a garden one time where a uh, particular professor said to his two pupils, they're just trying to take away all your fun and really you're smart enough to figure this out on your own and you really don't need them because you're God's yourself. Translation, Genesis chapter three, serpent, Adam and Eve. It's exactly, this, it's the same lie as the garden. You don't need God. You can figure truth out by yourself. Be independent. 
You don't need the church. You don't need a community of believers. You don't need a family. You don't need the Holy Spirit. You don't need God. You can figure truth out by yourself. And to the degree you figure that out, live that out and you'll be fine. And look what that's got us. How's that working for you? How's that working for you, culture? How's that working for you, broken marriages? How's that working for you, economic system? Over $200 trillion in debt after we add everything up. How's that working for us? Why don't they know this? Now, this is the root structure here. Economists have lost the secret of the West's success because philosophers have lost the very idea of truth. The truth was lost because of an intellectual arrogance that rejected divine revelation and tried to discover truth with the human mind alone. Makes complete sense. I'm trying to use everything with a scientific method Everything must be empirical. Everything must be observable. Everything must be ran through all of these tests and to the degree that it comes out on the other end, then it's true. Scottish philosopher David Hume, 1711 through 1776, demonstrated that unaided logic and experience could not prove God. Unaided logic could not prove God. Okay, I, I, I agree with that. Could not prove the human self or some of the basic assumptions of science, such as that every effect has to have a cause or that the laws of physics have to be the same everywhere at every time. So his recognition of the limits of logic should have humbled the enlightenment's arrogance. It should have. But when enlightenment thinkers and philosophers said, well, remember the mind justifies what the heart has chosen, right? So instead of humbling them saying, maybe there's something here that we don't understand, Maybe there, maybe there is a divine intelligence and that the answers that we're coming up short on should lead us towards that. No, 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 this is what they said. However, instead of admitting that our logic had its limits, many assumed that if logic could not prove God, then God could not exist. How arrogant, how arrogant. I can't prove you exist, so you don't exist. I can't understand you, so you don't exist iPad, I don't understand how you are able to pull up all these brilliant apps so you don't exist. I don't understand how um, I can be in Best Buy and my phone can have a playlist and a speaker across the room can play the music that's on. I don't understand that. Does anybody understand what the cloud is? Do you really understand what the cloud, what is the cloud? Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Do you understand how these things operate? Do you understand all of the inside and out of these? I don't understand those things. But you know what? That doesn't invalidate the fact that they exist. Jesus said something very similar to this in John chapter three. He says, look at the wind. You can't touch the wind. You can't measure it. You can't taste it. You can't grab it with your hands. He says, yet the spirit blows or the spirit chooses to blow. The wind exists so this is what they said. Well, since we can't measure these things and because we can't understand these things and because the limitations of our logic are disproving these things, well, here's what we'll do. We'll say that experience, experience is God. Experience is God. Let's take a look at some thoughts here as I try to bring this down to a close. Postmodernism says truth is determined by your experience. You know, there's been a phrase that I've heard in Christendom for many years, 
And every time I've heard it, conceptually it makes sense and I understand the purpose and the, I understand where they're trying to go with this statement. But have you ever heard the statement, um, you can't argue against a person's testimony. You can't argue against personal experience. Well, that's not necessarily true. Truth doesn't have to argue against personal experience. Now, ideally, our lives will conform to truth and support truth. But just because you got high and you, and you felt like you encountered more of God, that doesn't make that a truth. You can't argue against my experience, brother. I smoked that thing and I, I, my, I got felt closer to God than I've ever been before. Your personal experience is not on the same level of truth. That is a postmodern relativistic approach to truth. Even though we couch it in the name of God. Well, your, your argument can't line up against my experience. It's postmodernism, folks. Truth is truth and our lives should conform to it. So the better statement should be, you know what? It's true that God heals, period. Whether I receive healing in this physical body or not, that doesn't matter. Because if God is true, and if what he says is true, it is true whether or not I'm experiencing the reality of it here or not. Because if I really understand the truth and the spirit of truth that God is communicating, I will experience the full manifestation of the truth of what he's saying at some point. My experience, for positive or negative, does not determine what truth is. It's postmodernism. Let's look at this. I remember I was having this conversation with a young worship leader, one who probably most of you guys have uh, this person's CD. I had the opportunity to sit down at lunch with this guy. And um, uh, you know, worship leaders, the verse here in John chapter 4, 23 and 24, it says this, John 4, 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I heard this worship leader say this, what that means to me, er, that's your first red flag. <laughs> How many Bible studies have you been to? How many times have you sat down with an agnostic? How many times have you sat down with an embittered Christian? And they said, well, you know what that means to me is, you've already invalidated your argument. Your starting point is yourself and your experience. Your starting point is not truth. Better to say, to the degree that I understand truth right now and I'm growing in my understanding of truth because my desire is to find out what the truth of that is, this is how I see it. <laughs> Knowing that how I see it may not be completely accurate. Are you hearing me this morning? So just because you, this is, this is how I see it, I could care less how you see it. I wanna know how God sees it because God's the author of the truth. So this is what that worship leader says. He goes, oh, this is how I see it. It says that God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. That means just be truthful when you worship. It means be true to who you are. Oh God, that's... who's the starting point? Be truthful to who you are, not be truthful to who God is. It means that when you're worshiping, you ought to just be true, man. Be true, dude. To be true, man. Be true to yourself. That's what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not making any lies up. He's like, dude, be true. Now you're up there, man, if you want to jump, just jump because that's being true to yourself. That is not what the scripture is saying. God, worship the, God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in the truth of who God is. 
and of the truth of what he has prescribed to be righteous and good and holy, not what you think is righteous and good and holy. That's truth. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, this scripture jumped out at me as I was just meditating on this this morning. I didn't have it in my original notes, but write this verse down. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it's death. Listen, I can be very sympathetic as Christy and I thought about all the different social issues that are going on, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it be civil unions or whether it be abortion or whether it be gender equality, all those things. You know, to the unredeemed mind of man, to the unsanctified compassion of man, I can understand that. I can understand you, you fighting for that cause and you feeling like this is right and just and good and fair and equal. But this is the scripture, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man. The missing variable in that equation very simply is that your mind, as good as the intentions of your mind and heart are, without God, they're unredeemed, therefore they can never know truth. I'm gonna have to cut this short today. Let me just, let me leave you with some thoughts here today. And then we'll come back and we'll, we'll just take this another step further. These are statements for evaluation. And I want you to think if you've ever said these things or heard these things, I've heard a ton of them this week. Number one, to each his own. To each his own. And you know, as you walk through this, you can, you can probably put that in its right grid. Hey, you know, don't tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing with my life, with my time, with my money, with my family, with my finance. To each his own, man. Christians, this is out of the mouth of Christians. Number two, evaluate this statement. I don't see anything wrong with it. So to the degree that you see something wrong with it, to that degree, it is right or wrong. This is called relativism. This is called arbitrary. This is called postmodernism. So if you think it's right, then it's right. If you don't think it's, it's if, you think, if you don't think it's wrong, then it should be okay. That's not true. Number three, lighten up. We're just having some fun. Why don't you lighten up? So what are we saying there? Truth, truth, is to the degree that I can have fun and enjoy myself. Lighten up. Number four, but look at what you're doing. This became like the, 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 the hallmark of Christy and my battles. Hey, baby, you really think about this. Well, what about, what about you? Look what you're doing. Okay, I, that's not the point. The point is... What are we saying here? We're saying that it's true if you're doing it in some measure yourself as well. That doesn't make it true. Number five, you can't trust authority. They will only hurt you. Truth is based on your experience. And you could fill in the blank with whatever that is. I read an article I'm gonna bring into this conversation because it deals with consumer Christianity. Time Magazine talked about how the trend is that most young couples now into their 30s and 40s are living a life where they wanna have no children and totally justifying it through wonderful arguments. Essentially what they're saying here is, um, we see so many broken marriages, why, why, why waste the time? Why have kids? Why do that? Obviously it's broken, so we shouldn't wanna do it. Well, that's, that's basing your truth out of unredeemed humanity's experiences. Number six, I'm bringing this to a close, but it's for a good cause. You know what, I, I, I'm sure the, the, the drug dealers the gun smugglers, I'm like, look, dude, it's for a good cause, man. You give me your money, 
sell you these guns and you'll get to quell all those uproars. It's for a good cause. So in other words, I can do whatever I choose to be right as long as I take the money and I do right things with it. That'd be like the mafia saying, Every, all the blood money that I get, I'm just gonna donate to churches and that justifies it. Come on, think about this. Now we can laugh at it like that, but we do this in our own lives. We say, oh, but it's for, you know, that says the ends justifies the means. Now, when you expand that argument, now, now we are on a whole different playing field. What you're saying is as long as you deem the end worthwhile, then you can do whatever you want to achieve it. This is coming out of Christians' mouths. Number seven, I can do this and still love Jesus. So what you're saying to me is that because you still love Jesus, it makes what you're doing truth or right. When Jesus says in John 14, 23, if you love me, you will obey my truth. You can't say that you love Jesus and disobey him. You can't do that. It's irreconcilable. Baby, I still love you and do everything that hurts her. That's irreconcilable. Number eight, I didn't know this was wrong until you told me. I was going along just fine until you and your little Christian standards and your church and your truth thumping. I, I was just, I was fine until you told me it was wrong. What's the implication there? I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know the speed limit was 40 and I was going 75. I didn't know. I'm innocent. I didn't know. How many of you have ever avoided certain things, knowing certain things so you wouldn't be accountable to them? Think about this. I had a friend of mine who would throw all of his bills in the trunk of his car so that he wouldn't have to face them. I, had a, I got a warning for you, buddy. They don't go away. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance has consequences. I've done this in my own procrastination. I've done this. I've seen certain bills and said, I don't wanna know what that is right now. I don't wanna deal with that right now. I'm not, and then I get late fees. What is that? That is this idea right here that I was just fine until you told me that I was doing something wrong. That's the purpose of the law. It is the righteous nature of the law to reveal to us that we are doing something wrong and offending the Holy One of God. And it should drive us to his grace and mercy. Number nine, but I've been doing this and I haven't experienced any consequences like you say. I've been sleeping around. I, have, I don't have an STD. So I can, I can keep sleeping around until I get an STD. That's what that says. I, you say that you say that disobedience has consequences. I haven't experienced them. Experience becomes our truth. In fact, since I've started doing this, I've experienced more blessing. Well, I could justify a lot of things if that's my standard. Finally, don't judge me. You Christians are so judgmental. Think about these. These, these, are things, these are things that are coming out of people's mouths. Christians who love Jesus, obviously. But it's the result of not thinking biblically. It's the result of us living humanistically. Humanism is not some far away ideo ideology. Humanism is when we choose our human indulgences and selfish desires over God's moral standard and law. That's what humanism is. 
When you hear humanism, you know, don't think Harvard philosophy. Think when I choose what I want over God's moral standard and law, I just became a humanist. When I try to justify my own self-deception and sin, I am, we are all humanists by nature. That's why in Acts eleven twenty six says they were known as Christians. Why? Why is that? Because Christianity stands in the face of humanism. And it says, choose submission to God and his truth and his law, motivated by love, empowered by his spirit. Don't be a humanist. Let's stand to our feet this morning. We'll have to pick up the convenient, and the, this is taking a lot longer than I expected. I apologize. Father, we ask for grace and mercy today, and we know that it's available to us by the empowerment of your spirit. Right now, I want you to interact with the Holy Spirit for, th- for 60 seconds. And if you have seen or heard something today that was revealed to you, just begin the process before you leave and let life get busy again. Deal with something here in this moment. Let Spirit of God speak to you. Let's have our altar team come on up here. Truth never condemns. If you're here today and you feel condemned, that is not our heart. That's not the heart of God. But you know what truth will do? It will convict you. And here's the difference. Conviction is a healthy pain. You know, if I walked on glass and didn't feel the pain, or if I got shot and didn't feel the pain, I could bleed to death. Pain alerts me to something that, something is not right, it's not in order. Truth will bring pain, but it's a pain that heals. It's like breaking a bone and not, re- and not setting it right. And then you live with that. You live with a, a, a begrudging pain your entire life. Listen, you don't have to live with the pain of sin. And truth, what it does is it says, I'm, I'm revealing something and this may hurt, but it's setting things right so that you can live in life and peace the rest of your lives. It's a process. It takes time. It takes grace. It takes God's spirit. It takes truth. It will hurt. It may hurt for a long time, but friends, it's worth it. Righteousness, peace, and joy are worth it. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes here for a minute, if you're here today.